Hey, in context, friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out, and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley in context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley in context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com slash survey, you will be entered to win a package including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's Handbook to Prayer, and Michael's book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com slash survey. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. The big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley, in context. Well, we're glad to have Dr. Joshua Jip on the broadcast today. Joshua is an associate professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I was reading over your bio and Vita this morning, and I was pretty floored. You've spent some time in the books, brother. You did a BA at the University of Northwestern. I saw you did some time in Cook County Jail, too. <laughs> yeah. Teaching. Yeah. <laughs> Not an inmate. You did an yeah. MDiv at Trinity, THM at Duke, and then your PhD at Emory. Just for our friends' sake who don't know you, from the time you started your BA to your PhD, how many years? Oh, so I was, you know, 18 when I started out at undergraduate, and then I was 29 or 30 when I defended my dissertation. So 12 and, uh, years effectively. Yeah, I had one year where I was an interim youth pastor and one year where I was teaching adjunct. So, yep. Did you always want to be a professor? Well, I wanted to be, a, you know, probably a radio sports broadcast kind of guy yeah. until I started reading the Bible really seriously for myself in my high school years and uh, thought at some point, I mean, I fell in love with the scriptures. I loved the scriptures. I loved reading and thinking and learning. And I thought that would lead into pastoral ministry, which was kind of my direction until I started doing my MDiv. And uh, yeah, things took a turn there to sort of the more academic route. Well, you can still view yourself as a sports guy. You know, you're you're, <laughs> you're in the sporting of teaching people about the Bible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I tried to give some color commentary, you know. And on, it's uh, a contact on, sport today. <laughs> on these That's right. Yeah, take we're the punches. So, the we're so right. far uh, away from where we started. Anyway, well... We appreciate you coming on, and we want to talk about the book of Colossians. So first of all, let me ask you this. Gnosticism vis-a-vis incipient Gnosticism, is it even worth talking about today, Joshua? Well, yeah, that's a great question. People have a—whenever you read the book of Colossians, they're going to ask, why did Paul write this letter? What was the problems or the situation that the church in— Colossae was wrestling with and struggling with. And it used to be popular to say, well, there's sort of some proto-Gnosticism here. 
that's a whole can of worms that's a little bit difficult to get into. People today disagree on what is Gnosticism, how do we define it, you know, and so forth. But they would basically look at some of these statements where it seems as though maybe the church in Colossae is devaluing the body. They have some ascetic practices and tendencies. And then there's also a lot of emphasis on wisdom and knowledge and insight in Colossians. And so maybe that's what Paul was addressing. I tend to think that Gnosticism is probably not the best term for what Paul is describing or perhaps critiquing there. But at any rate, that's why. Let me interrupt then. So for the average reader, and you and I know more than we need to know about some of these subjects, but when they come to a book like this, how much of the context, the setting, do they need to appreciate before they dive into it? That is a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, you can go as deep as you want to in some of these things, but I would say anybody could read Colossians, either individually or, you know, probably better in a study group, and ask the question sort of, why is Paul saying what he's saying? Paul's not just writing, I mean, I love systematic theology, but he's not writing, you know, a doctrinal treatise here on Christology per se, but he is, as we're reading through it, deploying claims about Jesus, claims about Christ as supreme over other powers, and our life and our character is to be found in him and him alone, not in other practices that we might want to add on. So even for someone that doesn't know anything, say, about the religious context of of ancient Asia Minor, I think one can read these four chapters and be able to say, well, here are some of the things that it looks like the Colossians might be doing tempted to pay attention to other deities or other powers, tempted to add on other kinds of practices to maybe placate certain deities. I might not have names for them. I might not know anything about Gnosticism or Stoicism or Middle Platonism, or, you know, I can throw out a bunch of isms, but I can see kind of this is the argument that Paul is setting forth in order to encourage the church to sort of say no to some things and say yes to Christ as their and salvation. This, and this problem is not new. I mean, we saw it in antiquity and we see it today with when I hear people talk about their spiritual or, you know, yeah, they're Christian. And we would say, well, how are you defining Christian? So we certainly have some parallel applications, right? Yeah. When we read through this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, for the Colossians, there probably was some level of, right, reading, thinking about the faith that they'd received in Christ And then using some syncretistic, you know, other religious sort of impulses that probably made sense to them to say, well, now that we've got Christ, we need to, if you're really going to be mature, if you're really going to be religious, you know, you're going to, it might sound crazy to us, but you're going to ascend into the heavens and see the angels worshiping and receive some spiritual secret knowledge. And how do you do that? Maybe, you know, you're a little bit harsh on the body or you observe certain feasts and days and years and so forth. And that might be strange for us, but some of the impulse, which often can be a desire to, all right, I know about Christ. Now I'm going to add on some extras. Sometimes there can be, you know, an element of ambition or competition that can be found there. Some of those parallels, I think, are still with us today. When I read through the Pauline literature, I'm trying to, again, take this 30,000-foot view on some of the literature. And what struck me about Colossians was 50 unique terms that we don't Mm -hmm. see in other Pauline language. His Christological core, which most of his letters, the first chapter is heavy in Christology, but Colossians 
is extraordinary, especially yeah. in uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through about 20. In fact, I've used that passage for both Christmas messages as well as creation. I know there's mm-hmm. a big split among young and old earth viewpoints, but when I read that, Jesus Christ is at creation. He is the one who created these things. And then, of course, we do touch on the intermediary issue that they were apparently being pulled into. So just that is an overarching view. I'm also struck by Paul's consistent use of the phrase walk. Mm-hmm. And here, of course, he talks about in chapter 1, verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him. Have you done any thinking about Pauline use of that phrase and what he might be teaching even us today? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I often say when I'm teaching Colossians, sometimes I say it with respect to other New Testament texts as well, is that discipleship flows out of Christology. So when you've got chapters 1, verses 9 and 10, where Paul's you know saying to them, here's my prayer that you're going to be filled with wisdom and knowledge and insight so that you'll be able to then walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Really, the rest of Colossians then is going to teach them what that discipleship or what that walking in a manner pleasing of the Lord actually looks like. And in every instance, it's something that flows from their understanding of who Christ is. So, you know, Michael, as you mentioned, this is why he moves right in in verses 13 through 22. Here is Christ, you know, whether this is a hymn or it's just an exalted description of Christ's work in creation, his work in redemption, Paul seems to me to be really concerned to understand, to get his church to understand, that before they can know what it means to walk in a manner that's pleasing to him, they're going to have to understand who Christ is, how their behavior flows from that, how that they're going to be putting on Christ and his character, something he'll talk about also in chapter three. I love that phrase, discipleship flows out of Christology. Where were you before I preached this sermon? <laughs> I could have used that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can take it now. Well, we are, no believe copyright. me. Right? I probably got it from somebody else. Well, that's true of all of our quote research, <laughs> yeah. right? One of the things I digressed on this message, and I have the Ephesians as well as Colossians, is this idea of pleasing God and the differentiation between a works-based theology or you know, faith and works, knowing that Ephesians 2.10 is alive and well, but we don't do works to gain favor, to gain approval, but the text says we please him. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Yeah. Let me add another verse in there that I think is just really gets at this. So it's this is in chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, Therefore, just as you have received mm-hmm. Christ Jesus the Lord— We're back to the word that you mentioned before, Michael. Mm -hmm. So walk in him, being rooted, grounded in him, confirmed in your faith, just as you have been taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So I think Christians need to walk carefully here in that we absolutely do not earn our salvation. We also don't come to faith in Christ and then just sort of on our own work or our own effort sort of go about the business of sanctification and holiness. But rather, just as we have received Christ Jesus, so the natural outgrowth then of our life and our sanctification is going to be flowing from our confession. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Lord. And then as it says in verse 7, right, Christian life is nothing but sort of like else but developing deeper roots 
and foundation and being grounded in that simple confession that Jesus is Messiah or Jesus is Lord. You never get too old. You never get too mature. You never get too to a point where you can basically move beyond sort of the confession, Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Lord, and Christian ethics, Christian discipleship, as I've been trying to say, is really an outgrowth from that. Let's talk about that Christology a little bit. I want to go back to chapter one for just a moment or two. The supremacy of Christ is such a let me read some of this because it's so mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, he rescued us from, this is verse 13, the domain of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And one of the points I made in the message was realigning of kingdom view, not a horizontal who's in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is really hard for believers. But verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. So we have the preexistent eternality. And in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And I love how he does that bracket in 15. Firstborn of all creation firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have, here it is, first place in everything. I mean, that's a sweeping Christology in a few short verses that, you know, I think three or four sermons could easily come out of that text. (laughs) Absolutely. No, it's remarkable. I mean, you've probably encountered the view some scholars have thought this might have even, you know, come from early Christians singing hymns to Christ. There's a second century non-Christian who said that when he kind of spied on the Christians, what he saw was actually pretty moral people who sang hymns to Christ as if he were a god. And so you were even noting some of the parallelism here in terms of the references to firstborn, and there's other references, parallels, but hopefully even your listeners can hear just some of the highly exalted way of speaking of Christ here in terms of how we we join with Paul in terms of worshiping him. So so practically, yeah. Josh, how do we help our Christian friends get a higher view of who this Jesus is? I mean, I call it horizontal versus vertical Christianity. We think I, me, my. And Paul is, yeah. in all of his letters, extolling who this person is. He's not just Jesus He's the God-man. He's eternally existent. He's our Savior. He's in our place on our behalf instead of us. He took our sins. We owe him our allegiance. How do we help folks? I say, how do you look up a little more than you just look out, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. No, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think having texts like these as a steady diet of your, you know, discipleship program, your memorization, you know, memorized texts like Colossians 1, 13 through 20, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, there's a host of them, just to remind us that Christ is indeed supreme. I think that's really key. I also think, I mean, I wrote a book that was called Christ is King, and one of the things that I won't try to get into all the details, of course, of that book, but one of the things that I was interested in trying to do there was to say, yes, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. He is the one whose life and death has atoned for my sins on an individual basis. And I believe in him and I trust in him. And that's just bedrock gospel truth. But Jesus is the exalted king of the universe. He's enthroned and sits at God's right hand. 
He's active and present. He's continuing to establish his church, his loyal subjects who are faithful and obedient to him. And so for me, a lot of this comes out of understanding the importance of how Paul speaks, not only in Colossians, but throughout his letters, of Jesus as Messiah. He's king. He's Lord. He's the exalted and enthroned king of the universe. And at least for me, when I kind of start to grasp that theology, it helps me, Michael, not only think of him only as my personal savior, certainly, but also as the exalted king of the universe. And I'm called to obey, love, serve, and be faithful to. You know, we've just come off a challenging election cycle, and we have perhaps uh, some pretty tumultuous years in front of us, and Christians are incredibly divided. And Cindy and I lived in the D.C. area for about 12 years, and we grew very politically interested, let's say. And so we followed this closely, and in my own experience, and watching other Christians get consumed with social media and, you know, one side versus the other and vilifying one another and, you know, ghosting them and blacklisting them and woke society. And when all that swirls around in my own soul, I lean back and go, Lord, how do I keep focused that this is the, as you eloquently said, the eternal sovereign creator, sustainer of all that we see and know. And I'm more concerned about what's happening on social media, on my accounts, my Twitter feeds, my whatever. And I just find it striking that I think Western culture, and that's where we can talk about Colossians and whether it was Gnosticism or whatever, they were so consumed with their own viewpoints that they're sort of syncretistically, you said, you know, gluing this onto Christ. We've done the same thing in Western Christianity. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it's, I certainly, you know, as a citizen of the United States, think that politics is important at one level. But I also think when it becomes our only or our primary frame of reference for all of life, both individual, churches, society, that then we are in real danger of subverting and corrupting the gospel. And that can be done in any number of ways. So whereas I have no interest in saying politics are important and that we shouldn't certainly not going to say that we shouldn't be strongly participating in our representative democracy. Like our first category as followers of Jesus, I think absolutely has to be, you know, rooted in the kinds of things that Paul is trying to teach his church in Colossians. Our primary identity, you know, whatever political side, whatever race, whatever gender is that we are, to use one of Paul's favorite phrases, we are all together in Christ. He defines our identity. And that's just a message, I suppose, that in every generation we need to keep learning and learning and living into because there are so many other different, you know, uh, frames of reference that can subvert what the gospel actually is. In uh, chapter 2, you took us to verse 6 and 7 and 8 through 10. He seems to be warning us not to be deceived and let me just read a couple of those phrases. Uh, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I make the point there, and again, it's what I raised a moment ago, whether it's politics or whatever we're consumed with, don't let that eclipse who this is. 
For mm-hmm. in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And, and my pejorative comment is, you know, people say, well, I can never love a God who, or how can Christians believe X, and what does God say about Y? And I go, well, all you have to do is look at Christ. If you look at the words and works of Jesus Christ, you know the mind of God. It's that simple. And yet, again, as I've already said like four times now, I struggle with keeping the vertical perspective on life. And so I don't think I'm special or different. I think a lot of Christians who love the Lord uh, have a struggle keeping that focus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I'm looking at verse eight here in the Greek and it's, you know, when it's talking about the philosophy there, it says, just as you read, empty to see according to the traditions of humans. They're according to the elements of the world. They're not according to Christ. Right. I mean, it's just, it's uh, the way Paul denies, you know, one way by saying this belongs to humanity. It may be good or bad, but it's neither here nor there in terms of how God has acted to work within the world. And, you know, that little phrase, but, you know, what's according to Christ is certainly how Paul's trying to train his church to think, how to walk, make decisions, and live in a way that pleases him. And then he's going to move, and keeping with your observation that discipleship flows out of Christology, the new self in chapter 3, which, again— incredible text about what this means. Give us Dr. Jip's overview of this new self. I would say this new self or this new humanity takes its starting point. Again, listeners are not going to be surprised to hear me say from Christ. Christ is the new human. He's the true human, just as he's drawing up on some of the language he laid down in the hymn, or the, I call it the hymn, the passage that we were talking about before in chapter 115 right? Jesus, he is the actual image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the true human. And he creates this new way of being human so that those who are connected to him, who have faith in him, and thereby are related to him, are able to put on the new humanity, whereby then they are able to live in a way that pleases him. You see all these incredible virtues well, vices, I should say, that they've taken off once they do this, right? In verses five through seven, no longer are they, look at verse seven, there's that word walking again, Mm -hmm. no longer are they walking or living in a way that's marked by sexual immorality or by anger or by idolatry, but this new humanity is going to be the kinds of people, as he describes in verse 12, that are going to wear Christ like their clothing, such that they're filled with humility, kindness, gentleness, patience, all of the things that we might refer to as, at least Paul does elsewhere, as the fruits of the Spirit. Throughout Pauline literature, he will often talk about, you know, consider your, in 3.5, consider your members of your earthly body as dead to, and then a list Mm -hmm. of sins. He does this in Corinthians. He does this in Romans, this idea of being dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And then I find it striking in the Gospels, where Jesus, I call it, amplifies the law, and the you've heard it said, but I say to you, sections in Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8, uh, you've heard it said, if a man commits adultery, I say to you, if you look upon a woman with adultery, yeah. you've already committed it. And then I tell people, we're toast, you know, we're all toast. And so this tension of considering ourselves dead to sin, which he brings up here again, and alive to Christ, I often say Paul never says stop doing something without saying, start doing something else. Mm -hmm. And so in verse 8, he says, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, 
slander, abusive speech, do not lie. And he gives us his back and forth. We all struggle with this, Joshua. It's not as though, and I get really upset when I hear certain men whom I really respect talk about sin in such categories that if you're sinning, you're not a Christian. If this is a characteristic sin, that's one of my favorite ones. If you're characteristically immoral, if you're characteristically whatever, you can't be a Christian. And I go, wait a minute, that's not what Paul's saying. It's not what Christ is saying. Help me out here. Yeah. Where am I off? No, I think, you know, it's kind of amazing. Just as you said in verse 5 where it says, right, that we're to consider the members of our body to have died. And then the members of these body that he goes on to describe are basically, right, all of these vices. But, of course, as we know from elsewhere in the scriptures, as from Paul himself, as you're mentioning, right, sin is still a part of the Christian life, and there's no sense in which we are, you know, perfectly sanctified. Yet, what I think Paul is saying here is that our ability and our agency is now transformed in such a way that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer in bondage to it, such that we have almost no choice but to continue to go in terms of our ignorant, wayward ways that would lead to idolatry and immorality. Instead, one of the gifts of being in Christ, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is that we actually are, albeit imperfectly, through the work of the Spirit, able to walk in a manner that does imperfectly embody the character of Christ that we see in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. So anyway, I would basically say it in terms of, yes, sin is still a part of an ongoing part of the Christian life, and yet no longer are we enslaved to that. We now have the capacity and the ability through the work of the Spirit and the work of Christ to love, forgive, and show humility. And while we won't do it in a way that's perfect, we should expect that the life of a Christian is going to be filled with some of the fruits of the Spirit. And you mentioned verse 12, and he says, what he covers in 20 words just always blows my mind. I tell people, left alone for a year, I couldn't write one sense of Pauline theology. (laughs) But he's, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy, beloved, and now here's the stop doing this, start doing that, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. It becomes a very practical outwork if we know Christ and we begin to set our minds on things above, as he said earlier in this chapter, we're dead to sin. So reframe. I tell people I do this. It's an embarrassing admission, but it's true. I drive a big SUV. And, you know, you can see a lot of things in uh, people's cars when you're in traffic and you're in an SUV. And uh, I remember distinctly seeing some things I wish I'd have never seen. And telling myself out loud in my car or my truck at the time, Michael, you can't have that. Michael, you can't do that. Michael, you're supposed to be dead to that. And it was such a vivid visceral. I could still see where I was on the Eisenhower. And I was struck by it's everywhere around me. I'm not even looking for it. And yet it's visible. And this way was a very, you know, tangible thing. And Michael, you can't do that. You can't have it. That's not who you are. You're dead to that. But that's how I view Romans 7. You're always going to have this arm wrestle. You've won the victory in Christ, but you're going to struggle with this. And who can deliver you, Paul asks? 
you may have a different take on Romans 7, but I think he's saying that's the struggle of sanctification. You can't make your flesh better. Yeah. Well, it's really, I mean, this. sometimes I just think of the basic project of what Paul's doing in these letters. I mean, these were people who already had received Jesus as Messiah and Lord. These were people who, right, had established some church and some community and were following Jesus. And yet, you know, the letter to the Colossians and really every other letter we read are Paul, you know, continuing to form them and shape them and disciple them into this is the way of Christ. This is what it means to submit yourself and your lives to him and continue to be conformed to Christ and his image. And, you know, it's a necessary means of grace for them, these letters are, so that they'll move in that direction instead of moving in all other kinds of directions, some of which you're mentioning as well. I love verses 15 and 16, the parallels. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And then 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. What a great framework. You know, if we focused on the peace of Christ ruling my heart, which that's a big can of worms, what the heart is. But if I, back to your, you know, discipleship flows out of Christology, Christology should produce discipleship. If I'm letting Christ rule my heart by submitting to the spirit, I often say God's word, God's spirit, God's people. And then verse 16 let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And this is perhaps, you mentioned memorization a moment ago and the hymn, uh, yeah. which he's going to speak of later in that verse. This to me is one of the most egregious errors of the local church is we've not encouraged folks to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And that's why hymnology is important. Memorization is important. Reading the same passage again and again and again is important because you've got to reframe, right, our old yeah. way of thinking. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that's so cool about Colossians is that hymn that he uses, the, you know, 1, 15 through 20, that language all about Christology is then the very language that he's going to use to further exhort and to encourage the church. I already mentioned one small parallel, but it talks about him as, you know, Christ as being the image of the invisible God, mm-hmm. One fifteen, And then in 3, 9, and 10, it talks about how we're being renewed into the knowledge of his image. And the point that I'm making here is that basically I think Paul is giving us an example of what it means for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly when he himself then gives that beautiful hymn of Christ in 115 through 20 and then uses it as the language or sort of the foundation or worldview for the rest of his teaching and exhortations that he delivers throughout the rest of the epistle. I think, you know, Paul was not just an amazing, you know, and fascinating theologian, but of course he was, in the first instance, a pastor and a church planner. And I think he knew, you know, before I'm going to be able to shape and form people's behaviors and thought processes in the right way, we've got to make sure that we're all singing these hymns or singing these songs, or at least have Christology that's sort of in our hearts and minds before we're going to be able to move forward. So, you know, we could say we need to sing on the same song sheet, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or right. off the same song. Okay. Now, why does he shift gears so abruptly into wives and children and husbands and slaves? Yeah. And help me out. Yeah. I love this about Paul. And again, it's there are some challenges in this passage in 318 and following. But let me make one observation here about this stretch of text and then say one of the things I think Paul is doing. 
in the ancient world, it was not surprising to find philosophers and teachers basically give instruction for these kinds of social relationships. How should husbands and wives relate? How should parents and children relate? And how should slaves and masters relate? Maybe I'm saying it overboard by saying it's a dime a dozen, but there's a lot of texts that do this. What Paul does that's really striking and interesting in this stretch of text is that he has this little phrase he keeps using, enkurio. So wives, be submissive to your husbands. Sorry, I used the Greek there. Enkurio means in the Lord. In the Lord, yeah. Um, as is fitting in the Lord. He'll go on then to say in verse 20 that when children obey their parents, this is pleasing in the Lord. Slaves are supposed to obey their masters, and this is in verse 22, because they're fearing the Lord. There's more occurrences here, but in the span of about six or seven verses, he keeps using this phrase to say all of one's social obligations are to be done, again, in the sphere of or in the realm of knowing that Christ and his lordship is one's primary obligation. And so it's a taking, you know, this is what I think he's doing here with this phrase in the Lord. He's taking the very mundane, ordinary sphere of life Mm -hmm. in the ancient world. Fortunately, praise God, we no longer have slavery, but in the ancient world they did. And it was, right, marriage, and it was child rearing, and it was slavery. And he's saying, whatever your social identity is, husband, wife, child, parent, slave, master, all of your behavior is to be done to honor and to please the Lord. So it's basically an application once more of the Christ hymn to even mundane and ordinary life. Mm. It's not just in your going to church or in your prayers or your memorization of scripture or whatever it may be, where you're to give allegiance and obedience to the Lord. It's in every single sphere of life that basically is Christianized. So, yeah, that's my kind of quick take on what he's doing. Oh, that's great. And how he wraps that up in verse 24, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's right. Underlined twice in my text with nota bene in the margin. I mean, this to me is Perhaps the for Michael, maybe not every Christian, it is the tectonic shift. You don't serve yourself, you serve your savior. Yep. You know, this is yep. not about Michael, it's not about Joshua, it's not about, you know, my even my family, my children, my grandchildren. It's about serving Christ. And that to me is I think the denominator that fights for I tell people that unfortunately or fortunately around me a lot. I say every morning when I get out of bed, my feet hit the floor, I say, I got a choice today, Lord. Am I going to serve myself or serve my Savior? Yep. And yep. I don't know why I remember that every day, Joshua, but I remember it every stinking morning. Well, it's a I, good application, I think, of what Paul's trying to do in yeah. this verse. Am I going <laughs> to yeah. serve myself or yeah. serve my Savior? And you know, self wins a lot. I mean, I got to have my cup of coffee and my cup and my mouth before anything else. You know, And there's just this dying, this self-challenge that it seems uh, Swindoll that said the problem with the living sacrifice is that keeps crawling off the altar. You know, we, we just, we, we have we ongoing, and that, is that discipleship? Is that pleasing God? Is it both? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's both. I mean, it is a form of pleasing God and discipleship in that it's a recognition that even here, 
whether, as you're saying, Michael, whether it's in your obligations to your family or to ministry or to friends or to whoever it may be, right, uh, you're basically being called to live in such a way that recognizes that Christ is Lord. So, yeah, it's absolutely like at the heart of what Paul's praying for for the church in the first few verses, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they'd be pleasing to him in every respect. I have quite a few non-Christian friends that on the one hand, it's a great thing. On the other hand, it's really challenging to turn the conversation to spiritual things. I suspect you being a seminary professor and involved in church ministry and so forth and writing Christian books, quote unquote. I love what he says in Four, verse 5, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. And then he goes on, let your speech as always be with grace, seasoned with salt, know how to respond to each person. You know, I yeah. spoke yep. about this recently, overcoming fear and talking about Christ, much less the gospel, requires knowing how. Mm-hmm. And unless I know how to talk about him or my faith, I'm always going to be afraid of people's responses. And depending on what part of the country you live in, whether it's, you know, a third rail to talk about God or Christ, I find, again, nothing new in human nature, nothing new in personality. In the first century-ish, Paul is saying, conduct yourself wisely to people outside. And then he goes on, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. And it's striking. The greatest compliment I ever get in life is when people say, you know, you're not like any preacher I've ever known. Mm, mm-hmm. And I don't say that in a proudful way. I said, bless God, because what does that mean? You know, preachers yeah. are sickening. You know? mm, <laughs> they're they're right. so spiritually minded, they're no earthly good, someone said, you know. And to have this wise way with grace, with salt, responding, that these are people made in the image of God that need Christ. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, it's maybe an overlooked verse, but yeah, I love that verse as well. Chapter four, verse six. I mean, thinking, thinking of how often we're inundated with just people's opinions and comments and sometimes cynicism and slander and, you know, all, all the ways in which we hear and sadly, sometimes we use our own words in ways that don't reveal the character of Christ and aren't humble and, and speak before, you know, too often say stuff before we're willing to listen and argue and show forth. I mean, some of the vices that he mentioned earlier in chapter three, the malice and the anger and the, all of that, right? They come out of, I mean, they're manifested through the way that we speak. And so even just the way in which we can walk wisely with outsiders by being people who use our words to encourage and edify and pray for and bless and demonstrate humility and pay attention and compassion to one another. You could probably get a sermon or two out of that verse as well. (laughs) Doesn't take much. I get lost in the weeds all the time. All right, Joshua, give us the 25-word overview of the book of Colossians as you see it, and then the secondary, how we apply it and integrate it. Mm, Yeah. So I suppose my overview would go something like this. Jesus Christ is Messiah and Lord. He reigns supreme as the one who was crucified to reconcile us to God, is now resurrected and exalted at God's right hand as the king of the universe. 
oh, by the way, he was the creator of the universe and everything. <laughs> oh, by the way. <laughs> and he, he has triumphed over every power, and he is worthy and deserving of your love and your allegiance. And not only is he deserving of your allegiance, he himself has secured it by sharing all of his life with you so that you are in Christ. I suppose that would be my overview. My quick application would be something like, in the first instance, meditate upon, think upon, savor, reflect upon who Christ is. For all of us, he is greater and bigger and more loving and more good than we could dream or imagine uh, if we were just left to our human inventions. So think about that, meditate about that, and then pray that God would form Christ and his character in you, in all of your daily lives, in your prayers, in your words, and as you put on his own character. How's that? Is that all right? I love it. Dr. Joshua Jip professor at Trinity Evangelical University. I hope and pray your classes continue in all this crazy time and uh, mm. God continues to use you and your writing and speaking and uh, press on brother. Thanks for your time on In Context. Uh, thanks. It was a joy to be able to chat about this great letter with you. So thank you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.